Our gospel reading comes from the fifth chapter of Matthew, starting at the 13th verse. Jesus is speaking. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let us pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today is the second of four Sundays we'll spend in the portion of Matthew's Gospel known as the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that Jesus had proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven has come near and that the Sermon on the Mount explains what that proclamation implies for those of us who follow Jesus, disciples like you and me. In the verses we read from Matthew today, Jesus made to you are proclamations about those who follow him. You are salt and you are light. Hence the things I have on the pulpit today. One from Harris Teeter. And then one from my collection. I have a big collection of large print things since I do things including sermons in large print. And so uh, I mentioned, I'll mention on, on the light bulb business, by the way, it was Thomas Edison who came up with that idea of putting a light bulb on top of somebody's head to represent a good, a bright idea. See, it gets brighter when I touch my head. <laughs> More than a century ago, there was a big debate about which is the best kind of light or uh, electricity. Is it safer? Is it better to have direct current? That's what Edison said, or alternating current. Well, <clears throat> we all know everything uses AC now, right, except for our phones, our com 
laptops, our tablets, and so on. Uh, so in the long run, for portability, Edison won out, but uh, for the electric companies, Duke Power gives us, uh, actually they don't give us anything. Duke Power <laughs> sells us, sells us alternating current. But there, were, there was a big parade in New York City, and that's what Edison had. These, he hired a bunch of fellows to prance around with light bulbs on their heads, and they, they ran little wires to the direct current batteries on a carriage. And so, I don't know whether there are pictures of it, but I know, I know I've seen cartoons of this event. Well, it was very clever, and that idea of a light bulb over your head representing a bright idea, that stuck, but Edison lost the argument. On the other hand, he founded Con Edison, and I guess he ended up winning in a different kind of way. Well, salt and light. You know, modern science has found problems with us having too much salt in our diet. The problem is, of course, as some of us know very well, if you have too much salt in our diet, it makes us retain fluid, and that raises your blood pressure, and that makes your heart work too hard, and that's not a good thing. So too much salt is bad for you. Nonetheless, salt is a necessity. We need some, just not too much. Salt is essential for animal life, including the human animal. And saltiness is one of the basic human tastes. The others being sweetness, sourness, bitterness, and something called umani. I know, you're going to wonder, what's umani? Well, it comes from a Japanese word. It refers to the savory, meaty taste. It's the taste of protein. It's what those folks who raise cattle want us to really like. Well, one of the things salt does is enhance the flavor of food. In the Old Testament, Job, not known for being a big cook, but Job asked, can that which is tasteless be eaten without salt? Well, if you've kind of gotten used to grits or oatmeal or rice without salt, you can say, well, sure, but we liked it with salt better. It just takes a little getting used to. In Old Testament days, salt was part of their offering to God. In uh, the book of Leviticus, we can read that with all your offerings, you shall offer salt. For a long time, especially in Old Testament days, they didn't have coined money like we had. You know, and so many of the examples of abundance in the, in the Old Testament have to do with abundance of food. But salt was a valuable thing. In fact, the very word salary comes from the word salt because at one time people could be paid with salt. Now don't tell, the, the, don't tell your employer that because <laughs> they might pay you in rock salt. But that's where the phrase being worth your salt came from and where the word salary came from had to do with salt. And at least in some parts of the Northeast where they've had so much snow, salt's just about to get that valuable too. Well, in Ezra, Ezra lists salt as a, uh, one of the provisions they were to provide for the temple as well as oil for the lamps and bread for the 
table and so on. In Ezekiel 43, we, uh, we read that they told the priest to throw salt on all the burnt offerings. And Ezekiel 16 talks about how newborn babies were washed with water and rubbed with salt. Now, we don't really know why they did that, whether it had to do with a ritual thing or whether it had to do with purifying. And I guarantee you, they didn't rub any of my babies with salt <laughs> early on. But it might have been a good idea. Who knows? Salt also purified. Second uh, Kings 2 describes one of Elisha's miracles in Jericho this way. He said, that is, Elisha said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And so they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt into it and said, thus says the Lord, I have made this water wholesome. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. And that water was pure from then on. Um, both Numbers and Second Chronicles refer to covenants of salt. Those were permanent covenants. I'd never heard of a covenant of salt. I've heard of lots of covenants, but covenant of salt. See, they said eating salt with someone meant that you were bound to them in loyalty. So if you're at the table today and somebody says, pass the salt, you're going to have to be loyal to them from then on, I guess. Uh, this, the Old Testament had lots of passages that refer to salt as an agent of barrenness, too. It was the practice then if, uh, if you, your army conquered a city, you didn't just vanquish it. You sowed it with salt so that nothing could be grown there anymore. But that's not the kind of salt that you and I are called to be. In the 50th verse of the ninth chapter of Mark says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That's probably not a blessing you've ever heard at church. Eh? But Colossians 4 also says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. Now, speech seasoned with salt, i got to tell you real quick, it does not involve what we sometimes call salty language. <laughs> but it speaks that is, what salt does to food is it enhances it. It makes it taste more flavorful. So that is, salty language in that sense meant not dull or uninteresting, but compelling. I know, that's what you tell me sermons need to be too, right? <laughs> so salt flavors, preserves, purifies. And we know what light does. It lets us see. It lets us sense what's beyond the kinosphere. The kinosphere is what you're able to reach out and touch. For some people, it's about six feet or five feet or whatever. But that's what we can touch. But you can see... When I was a little boy, when people found out I had an eye problem in school, because we talked about earlier how sometimes children tease, they'd say, how far can you see? And I'd say, well, on a clear day, 93 million miles, <laughs> and at night, light years. Well, 
we can see far beyond what we can touch. The uh, vision and light lets us perceive beyond that limited range. Light makes things clearer. Light guides us. If you don't believe it, just try reading or walking around in pitch black dark. My grandfather's house, I don't know how they managed it. It was, when they turned off the light, it was completely, completely black. You couldn't see anything. At our house, there's always a street light out or uh, somebody riding by or Everything electronic you have, even the toothbrush, you know, has, has a little guide light that adds a little light that helps you find your way around. But in the pitch black dark, which is what they had in those days. So one way that salt and light are alike is it only takes a little to make a big difference. You can barely tell that this light is on but if we were here at night with no lights on, either of these candles or this little nightlight bulb in that lamp would light up this room a lot. All good cooks know the value of just a pinch of salt. And if you've ever tried to walk around in the pitch black dark, you know the value of just a pinch, just a little bit of light. But as I said, in Bible days, they didn't have any lights. A house would be very dark. They knew the difference a little light or a little salt could make. Well, what Jesus said about us being salt and light, you notice how he put it. It's not an invitation. I invite you to be salt and light. That's not the way he put it. It wasn't a command you go do this, it was a declaration, you are, you are light, you are salt. But not to worry, this is, this is not a burden, it's a blessing, God's gift to us. It's a promise. Now last week I, I said that happiness is not something you just feel or something that you acquire or buy or get but something you do. Well, being God's salt of the earth and light of the world are not things we do. They really are things we are. The scripture asks can, you know, about salt losing its taste. Well, let me ask you, can salt lose its taste? Well, no, not really. Or can a light on a lampstand be hidden or as Jesus said, a, a city built on a hill cannot be hid. What Jesus said next about the law can be a little scary. He said he didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And the scary part was, he said, whoever breaks the least of these commandments, teaches others to do that, will be the least in heaven. And then he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that, of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Well, uh oh, if you remember, the, the Pharisees 
They were more persnickety about the law than anybody. They had laws about how far you could walk on a Sabbath day or how much, whether you're picking up something or whatever constituted work. They had all kinds of laws. If we had to outdo them, we're in trouble. The bottom line really is that none of us would make it to heaven on the basis of merit. We'll only get through, we'll only get there by the bountiful grace of God through the gift of Jesus Christ. We still need to follow those Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule and the Great Commission, but none of us will ever get there by our good works on our merit only by grace. Another way that salt and light are alike is, you think about it, they don't work in isolation. They both work by interacting with something else. Salt has to have something to flavor, to purify or to preserve. Light has to have some sort of source and it has to have something to illuminate. We followers of Jesus are not just salt and light, but salt of the earth, light of the world. Back in 1952, my father preached a sermon to the, his class of fellow students and his professors at Columbia Seminary. All the graduating folks had to do that. He preached on this passage. And one of the things he quoted was a little poem you may have heard about how we're writing, you're writing a gospel every day by the things you say and by the things you do. Say, what is the gospel according to you? What is it people see in our lives? Well, if you think about it, where, where have you been or how have you seen God acting through someone as salt or as light? Flavoring, preserving, illuminating, guiding. We heard one example of that not long ago about someone talking about how what they heard in Sunday school years and years ago that Miss Louise said is something they still carry in their heart. She's certainly a light of this church. So how will you be salt? How will you be light to those who need to hear the good news of God's abundant grace? Thanks be to God. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory not to you, but give glory to God, for you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now may God bless you and keep you, and may the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.